You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everybody. Wanted to take a moment to wish everyone out there, especially all those hardworking men and women in performing arts unions across the country, a very, very happy Labor Day. Hope you're enjoying it. Now on with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport. I am honored to have with us today one of the most important voices in theatrical criticism on the planet. Please welcome to the podcast New York Times theater critic, Mr. Charles Isherwood. Welcome, Charles. Thank you. So, Charles, which came first for you? Was it your love of the theater or your love of writing? Well, I think I was a natural writer before I became a lover of theater because uh, as a child, I used to write lunatic stories um, that I would be very embarrassed to read today, I'm sure. And theater really didn't come into my life until I was, you know, in my early 20s because I grew up in a suburb in Northern California. We didn't go to the theater that much. That's what my parents did. They went to ACT and the kids stayed home. But I was a huge Pauline Kael fan, so and I was a huge movie fan. I would start reading Paul and Kale and get more and more into movies. And somehow, between having 
I think, a certain natural writing instinct or talent and becoming obsessed with Pauline Kael, that ultimately led to my career, such as it is. <laughs> and where did the career in criticism begin? Like, where, how, did, how did it start? Well, I moved to Los Angeles after college, and uh, I now call that the lost decade in Los Angeles. In fact, it, without that, I would never be where I am today because I started working in a magazine which folded, and then Variety gave me a job as a copy editor. At the time, they didn't have a reliable or regular daily, you know, Variety LA theater critic. And I'd gotten much more interested in theater by this point. And I sort of had my Ruby Keeler moment where I went in and said, hey, let me do this. I can do this. And uh, it turned out well. You know, I started becoming the main daily reviewer for LA Variety. And then they moved me to New York. So, Do you remember the first play or musical you ever reviewed? Well, actually, I did write for Backstage West in its infancy before. That's how I had my Ruby Killing moment. I had my little reviews to show. Five dollars I got paid for those reviews, by the way. By the hand, some reviewers are probably still getting paid that. If, if. I, I know, I know, it's sad. So, wait, what was the question? What was the first review? Do you remember oh, the first, first review? review? No. I think it was a small play in uh, Pasadena called Murder for Rent that was, of course, impossibly bad. But, uh, you know, I got to cover a few interesting things, lips together, teeth apart in L.A., and it's the first incarnation. So, you know, I started small, but when I started writing for Daily Variety, you know, I got more attention, and then I started coming to New York much more often, and then they moved me here. And when you started writing reviews, did you think, someday I want to be a critic for the New York Times? Was that a desire or a dream at that point? Um, you know, it never really occurred to me until people started saying to me, oh, you'd be great at the New York Times. I mean, not that people were stopping me on the street or anything. But a couple of people, uh, when I first moved to New York and started writing for Variety, said, hey, you're a very good critic and the Times would be lucky to have you, but... I don't know if they feel that way at this point. And what was it like getting that call eventually and thinking you were going to work for the theatrical paper of record? Well, I mean, obviously it was terribly exciting. At the same time, I had been called by the Los Angeles Times to move back there and become their chief critic. That's always how it works. Until you're desirable to someone else, you're not that desirable to this one. So, of course, it was exciting. And, was that uh, a tough choice to go between the uh, two? No. Not really. I love New York. As I said, I feel like I'm a born New Yorker who just took a long time to get here. L.A., much as I love the city now when I visit, it just was not the right fit for me. So I didn't want to go back. Tell me a bit about your process for writing a review. Do you take notes during the shows? Do you like to see them early or middle? Do you go home and write the review right away? What's what's If you were going to see a show tonight after it was done or even during, what would be your process? Well, I take notes, of course, they're illegible, but uh, it really serves as more of a memory device. Like, when you're writing on a particular moment or line of dialogue or image, it sticks in your memory more. So you don't even look at the notes necessarily, you still remember it, because you've taken that note, because it struck you. So I'll take notes, but I don't write the second I get home. <laughs> That's when I have a drink. So the notes, <clears throat> let me just ask about the notes. Do you only note... Good, or do you note bad? As oh, well? I note everything. Everything. Anything that strikes me. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to have my notes transcribed. And 
put in an anthology anywhere. They'd be inane, of course, but also condemnatory in some ways. Um, Hillary Clinton emails. Yeah, well, let's not go there. No politics. I'm not allowed to, you know, express opinions. But, no, I write the next morning. And, of course, as you know, in the theater, we usually have two or three previews before the show opens. So you're not under that crazy pressure that they are in London, where literally you have to write your review within an hour. And were you ever writing reviews at a time when you had to do that? Or has it all, have you always had the cushion of a couple of days? Well, no, in Los Angeles, they didn't have press previews. So you go to the opening and you would have to write by 10 a.m. the next morning. And then the crazy thing is, I couldn't believe I did this. I was still working as a copy editor, so I'd write a review in the morning, then go work an eight-hour shift as a copy editor, and then go to another show possibly that night and write the next morning. There was a uh, lighting designer, Ken Billington, who was on this very podcast, and he said he missed the days of when reviewers had to go to opening night and write the review that night because he felt there was like a live or die energy in the room that made it more exciting for people. Do you think we could ever For go people on stage? Or? For everybody. That oh. even the people sitting in the house, we all knew that oh, the reviewers are there, this is it, this is the performance that everyone's going to see. His concern, is, I guess, has been that what if a reviewer goes to see a matinee where it's a dead house on a Saturday afternoon or something? Do you think we could ever go back to that? Uh, no, that's not happening. Um, for any <laughs> I never knew you were so funny, Charles. I'm quite funny when I'm sour. <laughs> but uh, no, that's not going to go back. We're not going back to that. And I don't... From my perspective, I think the criticism is actually much more acute and well-written and perceptive when you have time to process the play, which, you know, you have to do overnight sometimes. And also, the truth is, the performance on opening night with the critics there is not going to reflect what you know is going to happen two days later or three days later. In a weird way, I think when there are four previews the critics can go to, maybe you're getting a more accurate picture of what is going on stage every night. How long does it take you to write a review? You start the next morning? Yeah, I mean, it depends. If you're in a passionate fury to say something good or bad, it'll take as little as 90 minutes. Of course, you go back and refine and adjust. Um, sometimes you want to take it slower and do one paragraph here, one paragraph there. But usually I do them all in, I'd say, an average of three hours. And you mentioned adjusting and changing or rewriting, which, of course, something all writers do. How much do the editors influence what you do in terms of space or language? Or is it really your own review when it gets published? Well, which editor? I've had five now, I believe. You know, they, critics, I think, have more leeway than reporters to, you know, stand firm. This is what I want to say. This is how I want to say it. All my editors have been helpful in some ways. And, uh, you know, you do want that perspective. In general, I don't, I'm not heavily edited. I know Ben is not heavily edited. So we pretty much, what you see is what you get, you know what I mean? We really are offering our fairly unvarnished opinions or excessively varnished opinions, or however you want to read it, of what we saw. The editors do not meddle too much. How many shows a year do you see? Do you know the number approximate? I lie awake at night trying to figure out that number. I probably see, on average, four shows a week. So that's, what, 200 and... I can't do math. That's why I'm in this business. 
but that's you know at least four shows a week. You know, because I see the shows I'm reviewing, I see the shows that Ben is reviewing. You sometimes try to see things that are far off your beat. So I'm out almost every night. But I'm a nocturnal person, so this is an ideal job because you don't have to get up early in the morning. So you will see something that Ben is reviewing that is already chimed in on just to for your own education or just... Well, and of course I have to, you know, at the end of the year we have to have our Tony predictions and picks and all this stuff, so I have to see a lot of shows. I often have this image of you and Ben at the at the office going back and forth about uh, about a show. Do you find yourself agreeing or disagreeing more? Do you ever talk about this stuff? We occasionally have conversations, uh, not personal conversations, but we do these for the paper where we talk about the season or whatever. But no, we rarely see each other. I mean, neither of us works from the office. And I usually don't see the shows he reviews until they've opened, so I don't read his review until after the show's open, so I don't want to be tainted. But, of course, I have to have my own opinion. But, you know, very often, obviously, he's a very astute, smart critic and very good writer, so very often I don't have that many. It's not like I'm outraged every week at what Ben has written. So it's not blowing an issue. And those articles that have been done, the conversations with you two about the season are some of my favorite articles of the year in the arts and leisure section, by the way. Uh, so 200-something shows a year. Now, I find it, I'm a Tony voter, and at the end of the year, as things start to pile up for me with shows, mm-hmm. I, I literally will get tired of seeing show after show, and it starts to wear on me. Does the same thing happen for you? Is this a problem with our industry right now in terms of the backloaded heavy season? Well, every season is slightly more end-loaded, uh, shall we say. Um, but uh, yeah, April is a very, you know, it's a cliche, it's the cruelest month for theater critics. Um, but I don't cover so much Broadway, so I can take a little more time. I do find it baffling that this model still continues to exist, that, you know, you'll have, you know, there are, what, 36, 37, 38 shows opening in a season on Broadway, and 12 of them will open in one month or five weeks. Uh, it doesn't do a great service for anybody, I don't know. But I don't see how it's going to change because there's also, you know, proof that the closer you open to the Tonys, the more likely you are to get more attention and thus Tony awards and money. Is there anything else that producers could do to make things easier for the critics in terms of schedule or timing or things that you wish, oh, if they only, like, for example... We, and maybe, I'm not sure if you do this or not, but if you request a script now, we'll send you a script beforehand so you can really look at things. Is there something else that you wish producers or writers would do to make thing, your job easier? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, actually, you know, we have it pretty easy these days. It is, I mean, I never read the scripts before I see the show, even if I get them. But it's nice to be able to consult them. I think critics are treated very well, actually. I don't have any complaints. I mean, it would be nice if, you know, there were 12 shows opening in one week in April, or two weeks in April, but, um, you know, at the times we touch wood, <laughs> metaphorically, actually, I'm going to, um, we do, you know, we still have two critics, so neither of us is having to cover everything, so that helps. Now, obviously, you're a theater fan as well. So, and this is my job, but I'm also a theater fan. So, you'll see me on the trades, Playbill, or some of the other more just press, some of the other websites that just push promotional material out for the shows to catch the latest video in rehearsal of this song or this mm-hmm. new musical. Now, 
do you watch that stuff? Or do you try to block that out? Because just like you don't want to read the script, you don't want to get a taste of what you may see. I don't watch it. I don't. I don't read too much of that stuff. Just because you do want to have a, a clear mind, um, an open mind, shall we say. And, you know, the gossip sites, I never look at those because they're always saying horrible things about me, I think. Or in my dreams, they're saying horrible things about me. If only. Um, but, uh, no, I don't. I try not to look at a lot of that stuff. I'd rather be, you know, reading a book. So no chat. Not reading. about theater. No, what, what do you read books about? What's your other... Oh, I mean, I want to read novels. I read Henry James. I read you know, very important books, Ken. Very important books. So no chat rooms, no social media, none of this stuff? You know? Well, I'm on Facebook. I, I'm much more on Facebook. You know, just at the times we're encouraged to engage in social media as much as possible, but I'm not on Twitter yet. And I live in fear of the day I must be. But been in fa- I think Facebook is actually, you know, obviously it's a very powerful tool that the Times is trying to optimize in its own way for all sorts of reasons. So obviously you know that a review of yours can have a big effect on a show, opening, play, musical, whether it's here in New York, Broadway, Off-Broadway, wherever it is around mm-hmm. the country. Is that hard when you write? Is it a lot of pressure as you put fingers to the keyboard? You know, I don't think about it. I mean, I I probably should more, but um, if you start letting those kind of considerations enter your head, then I think you're going to compromise, sound fancy, compromise your critical integrity uh, because those things really, you should put aside when you go in, you just, as a critic, you respond to what you're seeing on stage, not how your opinion of it will be perceived. Even though, of course, on a you know, conscious level, I know there is some influence that I have. But of course, it's been proven many times that you know, the Times' vaunted power of making or breaking shows is not, is semi-mythical. I mean, for certain shows, the more highbrow stuff, I think it's certainly the case. But I mean, Cats would have been a hit, whether <laughs> whatever anyone said about it. Do you ever write something and then think, oh, they're going to quote that. They're going to take that and slap that on the marquee somewhere. Well, I mean, you start to notice it, and of course they're getting much more, uh, shall we say, where should I put it, fraudulent, why not, you know, in selecting quotes and putting them together. So you'll have an adjective in three different sentences, and they'll string them together in ways, and some of the publicists or the, you know, the ad people will run these by us, and if they're egregious, of course, I'll say no. I mean, my policy is if the words are in the review, and they are not, you know, mangled in a weird way, put together to misrepresent what I said, fine, it's fair game. You know, if I said at one point, magnificent, even if I was referring, referring to the Ottoman in one scene, you know what, if they want to put magnificent and that's it, that's their, you know, that's their prerogative. Do you ever get uh, angry letters from writers, producers, feedback? Mostly uh, from readers who disagree with my opinion, writers, I did get a very nasty <laughs> email from Martian Norman once. It wasn't even about her play. It was about something else I'd written. But then we had a nice exchange. And I often find that if, you know, when you get one of these horrible attack letters, if you uh, if you respond in a, you know, not necessarily equally antagonistic way, then they sort of, they don't back off, but they say, okay, well, maybe you're not the horrible human being. I thought you were. So 
you know, I don't always respond, but I do respond when I feel it's necessary or I'm really annoyed. Do you ever get uh, thank you letters or positive letters from artists? I've gotten a few, yeah. I mean, it's probably about even. Well, actually, I've probably gotten more thank yous or, you know, subtle thank yous from artists than complaints from artists because I think most artists know that, you know, you're not going to win complaining about to a critic. Although, frankly, it doesn't really bother me either way. Okay. In your entire life, favorite theater-going experience, the one that if you had to watch it every single day for the rest of your life, you'd watch it. I don't know that I can say that there is one. I will give you a couple. Before I moved to New York and before I was really involved in theater, I was just starting to think about it, to write about it. I came and saw John Ware's Six Degrees of Separation. And I stood in line and failed to see it up when it was in the Mitzi Newhouse. And I made a trip back to see it at the Vivian Belmont. And that was one of the most transcendent evenings of my life because I thought this was just an incredibly smart, funny, profound play in a perfect production. And I just w- went out of that theater, you know, walking on air, as they say. Well, walking on the Lincoln Center Plaza, in fact. But that's one. Certainly... um the revival of Chicago that everyone, you know, went crazy for was also a very thrilling moment because it was a musical I didn't really know. And the style of the production was obviously fairly radical for the time. I mean, it was from encores. And I was in L.A. at the time, so we didn't have that. So those are two that I can really point to. Also, but, but discovering writers like Annie Baker, her play The Aliens, which is, I think, maybe the second, possibly the third that I've seen of hers, in this tiny theater in the West Village. You know, I came out of that. Just Sometimes you get a little depressed. You see a lot of bad plays. This one, I came out thinking, this is why I'm doing this. This is a great artist, and her work needs to be known about, and I'll shout from the rooftops if need be. So those three are the first three that I think of. How do you think Broadway is doing today versus when you started writing reviews? Well, I moved here in uh, 1998. And it was already on an upswing, I think. Uh, that was the season of The Lion King, which obviously became a big blockbuster. And we hadn't had a lot of American musical blockbusters. Okay, granted, it was based on a movie, but of course it was a very inventive production. I think Broadway's really gotten much more adventurous in the past, you know, five to ten years. I mean, you wouldn't see even Hamilton. You know, ten or fifteen years ago, that might have been produced off-Broadway, got great reviews, but Nobody would have thought of moving to Broadway. You know, this a rap musical about Alexander Hamilton with a multiracial cast. I mean, you know, that might not have happened. Fun Home, who knew that that would be a success on Broadway? So even though it's still largely a commercial, you know, enterprise catering to tourists and offering up a jukebox musical every single season or two, I think it actually has gotten a little more adventurous. The one-week area is new American plays, which don't really appear very often at all. And how has reviewing changed in the last 20 years for you? Do you find that it's your style has to be different now? Are you asked to write shorter reviews than you were when you started? What What's changed about that process for you? Well, you know, there are changes coming at the times because, well, obviously, as you know, <laughs> publishing industry is not, you know, in robust health. I mean, the internet is really disrupted, to use the cliche term, the business model. So we are trying to discover new ways of 
covering theater. And this fall, I think we're going to be introducing new features or changing the approach. In general, I mean, so far, we have not had any mandates, you know, fewer reviews, fewer words, but um, I think, I don't know, that may come. What's most dispiriting is not what's happened at the Times, which is, you know, generally just trying to adapt to a changing environment. What's happened elsewhere where a theater critics are being laid off or not replaced, I think that's really, that's the most unfortunate thing in criticism, arts criticism across the board, really, but theater for me, it's more personal. You know, there was a week over the summer where two theater critics got laid off, and then a month later, another theater critic got laid off. So, And the more voices, the better. And uh, so that's obviously... <laughs> it's not the cheeriest moment to be a theater critic. Where do you think we'll be in 20 years in terms of theatrical criticism? Hmm. I really don't know. The trends are not upward, shall we say. One always hopes there'll be a, react, a reaction in the other direction. And of course, now there are all sorts of blogs that cover theater. So, But I don't really know that that is making up for the, the loss of professional theater criticism. I do think that you know, if you're a, someone who's doing this day in and day out, and it's your job, and it's your passion, you should be paid more attention to than some you know, random 12-year-old who you know, really loves the theater. And I refer to no one. I mean, I'm sure there are random 12-year-olds who are blogging about theater, but I don't want to read them. What would you be doing if you weren't reviewing? Sleeping. What would I be doing? I don't know. You know, it's one of these things when you can see various other paths your life might have taken, but at this point, you know, if I had to switch careers, it would be difficult. You know, I'm at an age where it's, you just don't say, hey, I'm going to go back to law school and start, you know, becoming a public defender or, you know, even an extra on law and order, it's too late. So I don't know, you know, what has happened has happened. And, uh, you know, of course, if I lost my job, I could possibly find work writing books or writing about other subjects. But, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. What do you think about all the Hollywood stars that have come to Broadway in the last several years? Does some of them excite you? Is it just when you see a star-driven show, you're like, oh, it's a, just a purely commercial vehicle. It can't have any real value. Well, I mean, stars do not become stars because, you know, randomly, although some do. But, you know, most of them are very good actors, not necessarily great stage actors with a lot of experience. But I think on the whole, it's been healthy for Broadway, obviously, commercially. What is dispiriting, though, is the fact that because new plays, even revivals, of course, particularly revivals, have to be larded with all these star names that we will never, hopefully not never, we won't, it doesn't allow stage actors to emerge and become breakout stars on the stage. I mean, you know, Cherry Jones, I wonder if, you know, if she started her career 20 years later, would it be the same? It might have been much harder for her to break through if more stars in those days were coming to Broadway. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Looking forward to anything this season? God, this season, I haven't thought about it that much. Ready for the big fall preview in the New York Times. Yeah, I know. Be... Yeah, I know. We, we, you know, I have to. You read an article about this. I know. Well, we may do a dialogue. I'm looking forward to seeing the Lynn Nottage play Sweat again. I saw it in Oregon, and it's a really powerful play. I think maybe her best. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway, which is a lovely little musical that, you know, is sort of a hard bet for Broadway, but. 
it's more proof that Broadway is more open to off-the-beaten-track shows. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 19-whatever-year it was is a lovely show. It'll be fascinating to see how that does on Broadway with, you know, how they're going to make the uh, a Broadway theater mimic the, you know, semi-immersive experience will be interesting to see. So the fall season, I think, has a lot of interesting stuff, but it's hard to find an overriding theme. Some seasons are better than others, and you don't know until the end. Okay, I'm going to say two things. I want you to pick one of them. Ready? Broadway or off-Broadway? Off-Broadway. Plays or musicals? Plays. New or revival? New. Good. You passed. I mean, that's mainly my beat, so... If you could get all the producers on Broadway, off-Broadway in a room and could tell them one thing about criticism, about telling them to relax, whatever, what would you tell them about what you do that you don't think they know? Or understand? Well, not necessarily producers. I think it's different for producers and artists. I mean, I think for artists, what I would tell them is, well, first of all, don't read reviews. Don't? Don't read reviews. I don't think that's... You would tell writers not to read your own reviews? Yes. How come? Because the fact is, you know, they're highly sensitive people. If they've made it this far, they obviously have some talent. And I know from experience that, you know, a bad review can make you feel really bad. In fact, an opera singer once said this. She didn't read reviews, and she said, uh, I don't read them because the bad ones make you feel worse than the good ones make you feel good. And that always stuck with me. It's true. Artists are sensitive people, and you know what? You have to go by your own lights, ultimately. And, you know, it's not that I don't think I have interesting things to say or constructive ones, but I don't think, ultimately, I think artists have their own vision, their own voice, and they should pursue it no matter what anyone says. Are you friends with any writers? Any acquaintances? Um, n- not writers, no. I mean, journalists, yes. But uh, I, I don't really know any playwrights. Okay, my last question, my big James... <laughs> is this going to be the hard one? This is the hard one. It's the James Lipton question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. Did you review Aladdin? I did, yes. You did. I don't remember if you liked it or not. I did, much to my (laughs) shock and horror. It's quite a fun show. Okay, so the genie comes to your office, your apartment, wherever you write, and says, Charles, I want to thank you. My palatial mansion in East Hampton. I think that's what you meant. That's exactly right. Uh, the, The castle of... Theatrical <laughs> reviewing, uh, where you sit on the throne. And and the genie says, I want to thank you for your decades of service to the industry and your incredible critique of so many shows. And I want to thank you and grant you one wish, and also thank you for the great review as well. He wants to grant you one wish. What's the one thing that you would change about Broadway? The one thing that gets you so angry would have you banging on this desk, screaming out loud, if only they would just change this, Broadway would be better. What's the one thing you'd ask them to change? Ticket prices. I mean, I think that is a huge barrier to expanding audiences on Broadway. I mean, it's outrageous that $160 is the average for a musical ticket, I think, something like that. Hamilton is now, I think, 199 And that just, you know, and back in the day, I hear tales where... I sat in the balcony to see Lorette Taylor for 25 cents or whatever. I think that really has become a huge problem. That it, 
we're not going to really be able to develop huge new audiences without finding some way of, you know, making this crazy price point more accessible, you know, change, more accessible to more people. I mean, shows do lotteries. There's a lot of ways of getting discounts, of course, but in general, I think it makes it harder to put on shows. It makes it hard for audiences to see shows. But of course, that's a very complicated question involving union issues, as you well know. So um, I don't know that, I mean, that's my genie wish. I don't expect it to happen. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for all the years you put into into reviewing your shows. I'm a big fan of uh, all your writing, even the reviews of my shows that you that you haven't liked. Oh, well, you, they're always written. Sorry about that. I'm sure I was wrong. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. Have a great Labor Day, everybody. Whatever you're doing, I hope you're not working. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.